Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, the scripture says. Yes? Amen? And this is the day that the Lord has made, so we'll rejoice. Rejoice and be glad in it, um, despite any kind of circumstance. I'm uh, glad to finish Ephesians today, not that I'm ready to get out of it, just because, you know, it's time. You know, everything has a time and a season. So um, we're going to finish the book of Ephesians today. Um, like it or not, you know, I'm going to focus. Everybody say focus. You know, that's my word for myself. You know, you focus, and we're going to finish and not get um, too distracted or chase any rabbits or um, that's, that's faith talk right there, you know. <laughs> and we'll finish. We'll finish Ephesians chapter 6 um, today. But before we do, let's just run to the Lord one more time. One more time. Lord, we just ask um, that you would settle us in this moment. And um, God, that our hearts would be pliable and moldable in your hands, that as we go to your word again, that we come with a heart that is um, ready to receive from you and that is ready to obey, that is um, bent toward your will, bent toward what you want and your, your way. God, so um, again, we, 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 um, through, through the season and through our own lives, we understand that you've given us free will and we can be whoever you, we want to be. And um, God, I just pray that you give us a heart and a mind to turn our free will back over to your hands. Lord, and say, have your way. Have your way in our lives and in this church and in our families, in this nation, in our state, in this county. Um, everything that we have to do with, God, would you just have your way and would you use us for your kingdom, for your goodness, and for your glory. Um, God, thank you so much for the truths of the worship that is, uh, have just been uh, saying out. God, I pray that you'd have some of those hooks to get caught in our minds all week long, like those things that even the enemy brings against us for evil. Lord, you can turn those around for your people, and we have a promise from your word that everything... Um, that comes through in the ebb and flow of our lives. You turn those things to the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, help us to stand in that truth, to stand resolute, understanding that you are God and that you do not go back on your promise or go back on your words. So we understand those things to be true this morning. So God, we just submit to you. And Lord, we just ask that you would speak. Lord, speak through your word that the ground of our hearts would be good ground, ready for the seed of your word. And that we leave this place bearing fruit from your word, from your spirit. God, help us to leave this place, if not now, but to leave the place with a heart that is on fire for you. Knowing you intimately, as the Apostle Paul would pray for us to know you. God, we just thank you for who you are, for your provision. Your provision for us to be able to sit in a room like this. To be able to hear and open your word freely without fear of harm or persecution. And God, help us just to take advantage of it. Thank you for the provision that exists in this moment, that even as we hear your words, we can go right to your throne and to take our own lives right before you. What a privilege it is for us to be able to come to the God of all creation, one-on-one, -on -one, individually, and that you give us that one-on-one -on -one attention. Lord, thank you for who you are again and again. And Lord, help us to be moldable and pliable in your hands today. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, before we get to chapter 6, I'll say it again this week that it's really important for us to, when, we, when we're looking at a book like this, to take it in all of its context and to not get too far outside of, um, of, of the full meaning when the Apostle Paul sat to write and the Holy Spirit was speaking through him, that we don't get too far away from the whole message that he had for the Ephesian people, which ended up being for the universal church, um, meaning us who are blood-bought believers under Christ. 
that we can take these words understanding that we are all one body, one body together. No one is an outsider, he said here in the book of Ephesians, that when we look at the full counsel of this book, that we need to consider all of it together and not one part separated or divided from the other. Just as a recap, I didn't put everything that we've been through in the book of Ephesians here as a recap, but I do just want to remind you that as we get to chapter 6, that these first three chapters that we went over had everything to do with teaching and doctrine. He introduces the the concept of salvation in our lives as an initiation of a love-based reconciliation to our Creator, right? That this is not, um, it made me think this week, some of us do come by fear, And, um, and I think that's appropriate. If we sit in a place like this or we hear somebody somewhere and they say, you know, they throw out the truth to us that it is absolutely true that if um, we have one life to live, we only have one death to die. And the Bible tells us that after that death, that one time that we have to die is the judgment. And um, there's only two possible scenarios there if we're going to be truthful about it. And for that to be a positive experience, we have to know Jesus. So some of us may have come to the cross by fear, um, fear of what's to come after this life. However, when you get there and you really meet the Lord, the Apostle Paul um, just breaks open salvation beautifully as this love-based relationship that is um, back and forth and very intimate with our Creator. And we see and attain the knowledge as best we can um, of His love and then live a life that is an echo of the love that we've experienced from Him. We give it back in the best way that we know how. He lays out the provisions that we have from being one who belongs to Christ. He tells us again in, uh, in the first chapter that we have every spiritual blessing that is necessary for us to walk how God has called for us to walk, for us to be holy as he calls us to be holy. He gives us every spiritual blessing necessary um, to live the life that he has called for us to live. And then does a beautiful job in these first three chapters of reminding us that if we want to live a fulfilled and complete life, that each one of us, none of us is, is um, immune to the seeking out of fulfillment in our lives. And, and we talked about that, that you can try to put a whole lot of that stuff in the hole that would um, make us feel complete or fulfilled. But to understand that the Apostle Paul breaks it open with a simple truth that um, is not always simply lived out because we don't always keep it on the forefront of our minds, but we will never experience the fullness and the completion that can come from this life apart from a real, intimate, reconciled relationship with our Creator. It's just never going to happen. Um, he um, puts this picture of like a heart on fire. The conduit of the Holy Spirit allows Christ Himself to live inside of us at that moment of salvation, and He lights this fire. And, um, we, and it's our job to keep that thing kindled, to understand His love, how deep, how wide, how long, how high. And to stay amazed by that and not distracted by the circumstances that life can often throw at us. Then he begins to focus on how we walk. And that's where we pick up today, where we left off. That about chapter 4, or at chapter 4, he um, begins to deal with how we walk. That this is who we are. These are our provisions in Christ. And in light of who we are and our provisions in Christ, that this is how we then turn around and walk. This is the life lived in response to all God has done for his children in those last three chapters. So, um, getting to where we left off, we left off at 5.22. If you're there, Ephesians 5.22, and I'll give you a second to get there. 
And I'm not going to read that section specifically. It goes through this section that he breaks off and how we practically walk in the Spirit. Um, it, it lasts until chapter 6 and verse 9. And what he does here, is, while you're going, is he breaks off um, a very practical section that tells us to live out of reverence for Christ, to live in submission to one another. So to submit and to love and care for one another out of a reverence of Christ. And then he gives very particular um, examples in here. And the first one you're going to see in there as you read it this week or um, dig into it for yourself a little further later, he deals with the relationship between a husband and a wife. Wives, you should submit to your husbands. And husbands, you should then love your, Christ, your wife as Christ loved the church. And there is this push and pull and this give and take and this submission to one another rather than the exercise of authority over one another. To submit to one another in the relationship of children to parents. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And as a parent, as a Holy Spirit-led parent, that we don't provoke our children to be angry by the way that we deal with them or treat them or discipline them or we love them in, in, uh, in the Lord and we admonish them correctly as according to how he would have us to, to do that. So the um, relationship, submitting to one another in the children and parents scenario, and then he deals with slaves and masters. And for our own context today, um, I believe it's still applicable. This goes for a worker or a boss um, and that dynamic around how we work with other people. Even I would say even as you in a volunteer situation, if you're placed in a position of authority or a place of work, that you sign up for something. And here we are encouraged that in the submission to one another that we work as though we're working for the Lord. Lord and not for men, that we do the best that we can and put our energy and our effort behind the things that we do. And a lot of us know um, what it is to lead, and we know what it is to follow. Some of us in our scenarios are put in a place where you do both, where you lead and follow in some ways. But what he's saying here, and what is, the, what is uh, I think, one of, the, one of the best pieces of this, is he says, as a reminder... That God does not have favorites, that we should submit to one another. And as we submit to one another in our earthly relationships, we bring reverence to Christ. Out of our reverence for who he is, that we submit to one another as we walk um, Holy Spirit-led relationships out in our lives. After this section, he's going to take a turn. He's going to take a turn, but it's still something that we need to keep in our minds, that he's still talking about how we walk. It'd be easy to pull the next section that we'll go to out of its own context and then kind of develop a thinking, a doctrine, a teaching that is not quite right. Um, he is still talking about how we walk our lives out in light of all that God has already done and um, in light of who we are in Christ. And he's going to switch gears and he's going to say that we have an enemy. He's going to point to um, something. Oh, I guess some of y'all might have wanted to see that, huh? <laughs> there it is. Um, but he's going to take a turn, and, um, and he's going to talk about the enemy that we have that is very real, that we need to be alert and aware of, that, is, um, that may be his greatest weapon, the enemy against us, is to convince us that he's not there, that he does not have this hand um, that we cannot see that would seek to manipulate us out of the will of God. So we have an enemy who would love to render us ineffective in walking in the, in the life that God has called for us to be walking in and to walk in that way, therefore rendering us, the church, as ineffective in the world around us, right? Not showing the light, not being the salt, right? 
that um, we have an enemy that would love nothing more than to bring us out of this position in which we are called to be in. So I want to remind you from chapter 3 quickly, this is going to echo um, what he's going to say in chapter 6. And he says, to be strong in the spirit, the apostle Paul begins to pray. Now this is back in chapter 3. It says, I pray from his glorious unlimited resources that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. That God's will is for us to be strong in the spirit. And he's going to say it again, that we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might when we turn over to chapter 6 and start at verse 10. But it said first here in chapter 3 that his desire is for us to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in the spirit. And then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. And it says, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. This is where the source of our strength is. It is in him. It is in his love. To stay in that moment and to not be so distracted by anything that the enemy or circumstances in our lives could throw at us that we, we stop being strong in the spirit. His will, God's will, and the Apostle Paul's prayer for our lives is for us to be strong in the Lord, to be strong in the spirit. So... Here, I wanted to just outline some of the characteristics of our enemy before we get over there to what everybody knows is the armor of God, and most of you are very familiar with the passage. But just a reminder, in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says this, Be sober, be vigilant. This is going to echo the words of the Apostle Paul, that we stay awake and alert and alive and strong in the Spirit because your adversary, the devil, that this is not um, a game, that this is very real. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, raise your hand if you remember Pastor Paul ever saying that. He's careful to say that, and I love it every time because it is a reminder, and this is a passage that we wouldn't be um, misplaced to revisit once a week, to keep it on the forefront of our minds, that we do have an enemy who would seek to devour us. And therefore, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, so put on the whole armor of God and don't be caught out in the field, weak in the spirit without this armor. Because the enemy would love to devour you. Resist him. We see this over and over in the New Testament about resisting the enemy and he will flee. You see this in the life of Christ, Matthew chapter 4, when he is tempted. If we get there, we'll be able to, um, to look at that today. But the, um, James says the same thing. Resist the, the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who has called to us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, will he perfect. He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle. These are strong words to settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And when thinking about the enemy, I cannot help but go to Genesis chapter 4, which has been burned in my own brain. And this is the moment where Cain and Abel are both still alive. They've presented an offering to God, and God does not accept Cain's offering, and he accepts Abel's offering. And we could get into that, but you know we don't have time. Everybody say focus. <laughs> but in this moment, um, this is just before he's going to kill his brother. And God steps in to this moment where sin and rage and jealousy are rising up in Cain. And he has these words to say. And he, God personifies sin and brings in this idea of how the enemy will operate just at the right time to set us off in the wrong direction. You will be accepted if you do what is right. He's talking about the offerings that were, that were there. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out, is the NLT. Sin is crouching at the door. You see that personification of sin? 
Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. The enemy would come in at the right time, right in our lives, at a vulnerable point. See that piece of armor that we've taken off, draw his arrow, and just might be effective in our lives. It's crouching, it is waiting for the opportunity. But we must subdue it and be its master and live alert. Live a life that is alert. So, Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to bring it on, and he's going to switch gears, and he's going to say we need to be alert and aware of our enemy. Finally, brothers, walk in this way for all this time and do what God has asked you to do and be the person that God wants you to be and have this intimate knowledge of his love and understand his power, and his power lives inside of you. But finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In these things, we have to be strong. That's the first thing that I think we should notice in this. That this is not an exercise that we're building something up, that we're strong enough to do this on our own. He says to be strong in what way? In the Lord and in the power of his might. That our job is to be in him and to stay in his presence, relying on his power. First of two times he's going to say this right here. Put on the whole armor of God. He's going to say it twice, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Walk in this way with all this good instruction of who we are and the instruction of how to walk. Understand that as you put the whole, if you don't have that whole armor on, the enemy has a plan that would, that would um, deter us from being in that way. This word wile um, is a devious, cunning strategy employed in manipulating or persuading someone to do what one wants. It's a scheme. It's how other, um, other translations might use this word, a scheme, or a large-scale systematic plan or arrangement. This is not a haphazard every now and then. Maybe I'll try my hand at taking you down today. This is an enemy who is taking a step back, and he watches your patterns, you know, and who you are and what your weaknesses are, and he brings this... Um, systematic plan to attain a particular object or putting an idea into effect. And the scripture has already told us plainly that the idea that he would seek to put into effect is to devour you, to keep you weak and kick you while you're down and to devour you. Put on the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand against the plans of the devil. I want you to notice that word stand. Because a lot of times you can think, well, I've got this armor, I'm going to put it on, so now I'm going to go to battle and I'm going to fight. But the imperative that the Apostle Paul is going to give uh, us as God's people is to stand. Not to advance, but to stand. And most of the armor that we're given is not offensive, but it's defensive. That I'm going to be on the defense that if the enemy comes this way, I'm ready for him. Put on this whole armor that you may be able to stand against these strategies. And something that we should have burned into the very fabric of our minds and in who we are is this verse here, number 12. Because he is going to give us this idea that we need to carry with us because people are not our enemy. People, the other side of a political aisle and things that are going on right in front of our faces, if we're not careful, we pull out the wrong weapons and fight the wrong battles. That we live in the spirit and the enemy 
is operating on a spiritual plane is what he's saying here. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is echoed again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare, the Apostle Paul says there, are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. That we have an enemy that will look for the weak, for the vulnerable in the spirit. What we have to understand about the armor of God is that to the enemy, it's not like he's all-powerful and has this power to come and take away who we are in Christ. He looks for the weak and vulnerable because the full armor of God that is about to be laid out for us is impenetrable to him. The armor that we have, that the Apostle Paul is going to lay out, the enemy can't take those things away. No power can mine this away. It's been given. These things have been given to us in God. But what he does have is not what's necessary to dismantle, dismantle the armor, but he has this cunning ability to get God's people to take it off. You really got to think about that because I think that's the strategy of the enemy. He has no power. He's powerless to us. Powerless against God. But he does have this ability to run that mouth just enough to get us to doubt God in a circumstance. To doubt where we should stand in a temptation. To doubt who God is and to doubt our salvation in times of trouble. He's got this cunning ability to try to get us to take off God's armor that he has asked us to walk in. We're going to get an imperative here. So wherefore, so therefore, you have this enemy that is very real, that is right in front of us, who would like to take away what we have in Christ and take away our ability to stay and walk in him. So take the whole armor of God, the second time that he said it, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. What you see here, I already called it an imperative, that this is something that God's people should absolutely, without a doubt, be doing. That we should be standing firmly. That our fight is to stay in his presence and not fight the enemy. That the fight of our lives is to stay where God is. And this reminds me of it's one of my favorite places in Scripture. It's over in the book of Nehemiah. And if you know the book of Nehemiah, you know that, the, that Nehemiah is tasked by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it's in doing this, being who God has called him to be, doing what God has asked him to be doing. It is that the enemy, there's a whole lot of people like Sam Ballot and Tobiah. You know, if you go over there and read it, everybody say focus. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, but if you go over there, there's a whole lot of trouble that's coming against Nehemiah while this wall that he's building for God is um, being constructed to the point where the people had to hold a tool to build in one hand and a, a, a sword to fight in the other. And it's terrible in that moment, you know, as far as all of those things go. But God was in that thing. And there's some instruction that Nehemiah gives to the people in chapter 4 about verse 19 that speaks straight to this. He's saying, we're going to set watchmen on the wall. We're going to be aware that the enemy could come at any time and try to attack us. 
But when we see the enemy, I'm going to assign this person, and they're going to have a trumpet, and they're going to blow that trumpet. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that is your alarm. The enemy is coming. He is coming to, to stop and thwart God's plan. And what he says there is not so grab your sword and in your own strength go kill as many people as you can. What he says is rally to us there and our God will fight for us. Those are his words. That when the enemy comes in at this moment, in any moment, you sound the alarm, we stay alert. And in that moment, we don't operate in our own strength. We run together and we count and depend on God. And that's what we do today. That all of this armor is really about being solid in who we are in him. And not allowing any temporal, earthly circumstance or situation to touch that. That no temptation allow it to be so strong that it takes us out of God's will and out of this love relationship that we have with our Creator. To not allow any trial to be so hard on us that we set our faith or truth to the side and believe a lie in place of the truth. That we will get to where God is and stay in His presence and be there. That our default is to be in Him, even when it don't make sense what's going on all around me. My default setting is to run to Him, to go to Him, to be in Him. And aware of the enemy, but not distracted by Him. Nehemiah never got to the point where it's not our job to build anymore, it's our job to fight. I'm aware that the enemy is there, and I believe with every fabric of my being, God's going to take care of it, but our job is to build the wall. Our job is to stay in Him, to be in Him, to be who He is called for us to be. So he says, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. I wrote here before a Roman soldier put on his armor, he put on a belt around his waist. Is that belt of truth. And it held his garments together. And I found that interesting that this belt would hold everything else together. That if you lost this, you're probably going to lose most, if not all, of your armor in the physical sense. Because everything hangs on this belt. The belt of truth is not referring to the facts of the gospel. Meaning for us to know what God's word says alone. Not just to know what the truth is. But it refers to the subjective truth of a believer's integrity and faithfulness to the truth that we already know. A soldier's belt gave ease of freedom and movement. And truth in the Spirit gives us freedom with ourselves, others, and with God. He's referring to us living in integrity and faithfulness to the truth that we already know that we already know. We pull up to God's table and we hear his truth and we do it. And this belt of truth that we put on every day is our commitment to be the people who God has called us to be to the best of our ability in this day. Understanding that my understanding of God and what he wants from me may be a little deeper a year from now. But today, this is what I know and this is how I operate and this is what I know of God's word and I know that he wants from me so I operate in this submission to the truth that I already know. And that is to put this truth on that I have a commitment 
to integrity and faithfulness. The breastplate of righteousness that he's talking about here is not referring to the status of justification that we've been given in Christ with God. That this is something we already have and that we appropriate by faith, like those spiritual blessings in chapter 1. But what he's referring to here is not just justification at, um, at, com at, at conversion, but we put that on to the sanctifying righteousness of Christ that is practiced in a believer's life, is what he's referring to. To stay in a moment where we are consecrated and sanctified unto the Lord by our choice and of submission to him. This is the righteousness that we put on, not righteousness that is our own. We're still operating in his strength, but we have this idea that I'll wake up today and I will put myself in his righteousness to the best of my ability. I'll put this on, this sanctifying righteousness of Christ practiced in our lives, that as a soldier's breastplate protected his chest from an enemy's attacks, so sanctified righteous living guards a believer's heart against the assaults of the devil. Here I put environment. It's the environment that we create in our own lives by the things that we do and listen to and say and those, those kinds of things. Um, I told him last night, and I think it's worth mentioning again, I'll tap Miss Karen again, and that is um, right before staff meeting. Anytime you get me and Miss Karen in a room, rabbits are bound to be chased. It's going to happen. And... Um, so I, I honestly don't know where this conversation came from. I don't know how it originated, and I don't even remember how it ended. But I do know it was about mold. <laughs> and uh, that was not a matter of um, business on the staff meeting. But we were talking about mold, mold that can grow around the house or uh, maybe around the windows, or you see something around um, your house and understand that mold is something that really does need to be controlled or taken care of. Because understanding if you allow certain types of mold to spread for so long that it can actually ruin the whole dwelling that you're in, whether it's your house or wherever you are, mold is serious and you need to take care of that. But what you understand about mold is just because you see it somewhere does not mean that you've caught the root problem of that mold. Understanding that the root problem of mold is moisture somewhere, right? You've got to figure out what the problem is, what's causing it, and then to get rid of that. So this breastplate of righteousness, you know, instead of allowing any ugliness that shows its head to then begin to spread in our lives and ruin big parts of who we are, big chunks of our faith, right? That we strike that problem at its root by the environment that we cultivate in our own lives. Mold didn't come from nowhere, you know? And when we see the enemy gaining ground in our lives, there's something at, a, at the root of that in our hearts. When we're, when we're led astray from the Lord, there's something at the root of that that we should find. And this environment that we commit to, this dry environment, rids us of mold, but this environment that we commit to of sanctified, righteous living, it guards our hearts against the attacks of the enemy to pull us away. Next, he's going to say here, um, the breastplate of righteousness, and then in 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So here you might think that this is, again, taking ground for the gospel, for the kingdom. But in this context, what he's saying is not spreading the gospel, because we're standing and not advancing in the picture that the Apostle Paul is painting. Instead, it refers to our stability or our sure-footedness from the gospel, which gives us peace. 
we have a sure-footedness in what we know and what we understand about the gospel and we have um, a good understanding of what the gospel is, a good understanding of the truths of it, that we maybe looked into some apologetics and we are firm in what we believe and sure-footedness from this gospel which brings peace into our lives. And in that moment, we can stand in the battle. How many, how, how many of us personally and how many people do we know who have struggled even years after the fact, with the, the security of their own salvation. Was I really saved? Do I need to get saved again? So we should have this sure-footedness in our salvation, that absolutely, because I followed the word of God that I have believed and what he said is true and not my doubts. So here I understand my salvation is secure, and we should be able to help other people with that too. So then he says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then he says, above all, above all, what we want to do is take the shield of faith. The shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. When you look at what the shield was, it could have been two and a half feet wide, four feet long, overlaid with linen and leather to absorb any fiery arrows that the enemy might be sending our way. Thus it also protected the other pieces of armor, this faith, this faith that we have out front protects all these other things that he has already mentioned. Every other piece of armor. So Paul used um, this phrase to understand that a Christian's resolute faith in the Lord can stop and extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And I'm reminded of Corinthians again in this because the Apostle Paul deals with our thoughts. In that same passage I mentioned earlier in chapter um, 10 of the first book of Corinthians. And he talks about our thoughts um, and, and that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That the enemy would attack our minds. And he says, you know, and you see a lot in the scripture repeated about having the mind of Christ and having a strong mind and not allowing the enemy to attack our thoughts and our mind because he would come in with lies. Those arrows that fly, like I said, just right at the opportune time, right when Cain was so angry, the enemy was there ready to whisper this ugliness, right? Right when temptation strikes and is the strongest, here's that arrow coming, you know? through the avenue of our minds, through the avenue of our thoughts, that the enemy would try to get in and to distort our thinking and distort the truth, and thereby we would take off a piece of this armor, right? This breastplate of righteousness. Maybe the enemy could come in like he does with so many young people and us, even as we, no matter where we are in our lives, that he'd come in and he'd just say a lie and he'll convince us, manipulate us to take off this righteous or sanctified living. He'll manipulate, convince us that maybe we should question our salvation today. That this is the cunning ability that the enemy has to try to get us to take off the armor that, um, that the Lord has asked us to keep on, to put on. But this shield of faith, that as his lies come, God's word comes up, which is going to lead us to the helmet and the sword. And we begin to fight the enemy off um, with with this armor, but beginning with the shield, that as the enemy comes, we've got this shield, which is our faith, right out front. Number 17 says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that offensive weapon. I encourage you to go, Matthew chapter 4, and recover the temptation of Jesus, and look at um, how Jesus 
um, came through in this moment, being tempted in the wilderness. He used the word of God as it would come up to fight against the enemy, to speak truth. And you see the cunning ability of the enemy there, that he'll use the word of God even, you know, the word of God to distort the truth enough to lead us astray. Take the helmet of salvation that is sure, and then take the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. One more thing that I'm going to go to here is this word of God. It's not just only the word of God itself, but the preached word or an utterance of God occasioned by the Holy Spirit in the heart. That it's important that we hide God's word in our hearts, just like the psalm says, that we might not sin against him. We hide God's word in our hearts, and it is there. And I'm sure a lot of you have had this experience over and over and over again. That there's a situation going on right in your life, and somehow this scripture, you haven't been studying it in the last month or even six months, and it comes up, and it's there, and it's relevant. Yes, y'all know what I'm talking about? That's the sword of the Spirit, that we hide God's word in our heart, and he brings it back just at the right time, that he might speak truth in the middle of the enemy's cunning ability to try to um, get us off of our game, off of this place that God has called us to, this position that God has called us to. I'll close with this, and that is, I'm going to use this moment to spring into another moment next week, and maybe one week after that, and then Dr. Miller is going to come for a while. Um, the manner, when you look at what the Apostle Paul is saying here, the manner that we take up, take up those last two pieces, the surety of our salvation, the helmet of salvation, and... Um, and the sword is by praying and by being alert. And then he goes into that we should be praying for one another, praying for our church, and then practically walking that out, praying for our church, its leadership, our family, our schools, um, our country, that we should be vigilant in prayer and we should be alert and awake and really praying, right? Not just a side thought that is a prayer, but really persistent and consistent in praying. And that we pick up the word of God and we pick up the helmet of salvation by prayer, by being alert on all occasions to sound that trumpet when we see the attack of the enemy, to get to where God is and allow him to fight. So we'll do a couple weeks on prayer and good Old Testament examples of prayer and people taking up prayer and watching God deliver as he always does. Yeah, let's go to the Lord. Let's, let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are, for your goodness. God, I pray that you would use this word in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds, that you would help us to um, have it ingrained in a place where we do not put your armor down, but we pick it up and we keep it on, being sure-footed in the truth, um, walking, just as, as the, apostle prayed, the apostle Paul prayed so long ago, Lord, that um, we would be walking in your spirit that we would have an intimate knowledge of who you are, that our hearts would be ablaze in your spirit. Lord, thank you for the salvation that you have provided us. God, help us to be the people you've called us to be, to walk how you've asked us to walk, to be your people and you be our God. Lord, help us to submit to you in every way. In the mighty name of Jesus.